morning. My name is Pastor Eric. It's um, good to meet you all this morning. If you're new with us and visiting, feel our welcome especially. Before we come to our time of offering our uh, prayer requests to the Lord, just a couple of announcements. First, choir is restarting after being off for the summer on the 24th is the first rehearsal. And you might say, well, that sounds like fun. I enjoy singing and being with other people. In that case, you could also come to the choir picnic today at 1 p.m. There's information in your bulletin as a good chance to meet some people and see whether that's something you'd be interested in. But it's a great opportunity to serve. Also, one other practical, two other practical notes. One is that confirmation starts next week. If you have an eighth grader and haven't heard from the church or um, just have questions about it, feel free to talk to me because I will be teaching it with Earl and Kayla helping out because Michael's gone. I am no substitute for Michael, but, um, but nonetheless, that's what you're stuck with. Um, <laughs> and then also, um, there will be new adult education hours starting the first week of September. Um, with that said, it's time for us to come to the Lord, offer our prayers and praises to him. A couple of prayer requests we received during this week. Um, Jenna Marshall, who's a friend of Caitlin Camp, has recently had surgery on a number of tumors and now is wrestling with pancreatitis and other things, if you would be praying for her. Kim Van Buskert's sister, Debbie, um, has breast cancer surgery on the 23rd, if you would be lifting her up in prayer. And Stan Brooks, um, who's a member here who many of you know, had open heart surgery on Friday. Um, he's recovering, and if you would also be praying that his, they still need his heart rhythms to normalize, that would be a great thing. Are there any other occasions for prayer or praise that you would like to share with us this morning? Linda? That, that guy certainly needs prayer, Linda. <laughs> I'm not repeating that, but <laughs> thank you. Are there any other prayer requests or phrases? Jerry's mother, Carolyn, is making decisions on cancer treatments, if you weren't able to hear that. Anything else? My Let's brother-in-law, Don, just started dialysis, and he will hopefully be put on a transplant list for pancreas and kidney soon. And his brother, John, is on dialysis and is going to be put on a transplant list for pancreas and kidney soon. Is that everything? Let's come before the Lord then in prayer. Great God, we pray you'd be glorified in creation, be glorified in your church, and be glorified in our worship here this morning. Though we are small and you are great, help us nonetheless to magnify your name. Help us to make your reputation and your grace larger and easier for people to see so that you may be glorified in all the earth. Father, ours is a world in need of a glimpse of your glory. For ours is a world broken and dark and pale. It's rent by sickness and colored by sadness and bruised by cruel words and bloodied by wicked deeds. And we pray 
that you would show the glory of your grace to a world bent on revenge, the glory of your truth to a world in love with lies, the glory of your holiness to a world filled with rebellion, and the glory of your resurrection life to a world mired in death. Father, we pray that you would bless us as a congregation, that you would heal those who are ill, comfort those who are grieving, reassure those who feel troubles and frightened by what the world may hold. We pray especially that you might show your blessing to Jenna Marshall, to Debbie, Kim's sister, to Stan Brooks, to Sherry's mother, Carolyn, and to John. More than this, Lord, bless this groaning world, we pray as well. Show forth your kindness to all who ache, the mercy of the gospel to all who are ashamed, and your hand of protection to all those oppressed and downtrodden. We pray that you would make us agents of your blessing, so transparent to you that because of your spirit at work in us, this world can become a better place, a place showing your glory. We pray this ever in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We come now to the time in our service where we give of our tithes and offerings. If you're a visitor with us, know that you are welcome here um, and don't feel any compulsion to give financially to us, but we hope that you would see that this is an opportunity for all of us to offer our whole selves in praise and worship to the Lord and ask that you would join us in doing that during this time.
Heavenly Father, you are the creator of all things. You gave us our gifts and talents and ability to serve. From these, we give back a small portion to your church. May we use these tithes and offerings wisely for the furthering of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Our scripture lesson this morning is from the book of Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 31 through 37, and you have pew Bibles in front of you if you'd like to join along or if you didn't bring your own. So it's Matthew chapter 5. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. So we have been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount um, this last month and the next couple of months, if you're just joining us, where Jesus lays out this vision for the kingdom. He's coming to build his constitution for the new creation. And this morning, well, look, there are some passages of scripture that are pleasant for us to read, right? Some sermons that are easy to preach about how God loves us and is delighted in us. And we need those sermons because we can struggle to believe that those things are true, but the message itself is an encouraging one. And there are other passages of Scripture and other sermons that are challenging, but in a kind of general way, like the call to love your neighbors or to to, to seek to serve people. That's a challenge for us because we all know we need to grow in those things, but we aren't shocked by the challenge. It doesn't leave us uncomfortable in our seats. And then there are passages like this one, passages that are straight up hard and maybe even offensive. Um, I'm aware of that as we come to it this morning. I mean, look, the Sermon on the Mount, right, like like everybody loves the Beatitudes, right? You go to family Christian stores or Hobby Lobby or something, and you're going to find all kinds of knickknacks with them printed on them. And certain people fall in love with and gravitate towards all sorts of other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, like turn the other cheek or build your house upon the rock. And, but that said, I promise that there is no coffee mug or inspirational poster anywhere that you can buy with Matthew 5.32 printed on it, right? And that's because this text challenges our culture's assumptions and what our world believes and doesn't make sense with its way of thinking. And it challenges many of us Some of us have been divorced, and many of us have loved ones who are, and we can wrestle to know what it is that Jesus says here. And so before we work through this text, I want to just acknowledge that. This is going to be a challenging conversation, right? 
And all the usual comments that I make about challenging conversations apply, about how if you're a visitor, know that we don't usually deal with this controversial of an issues on Sunday morning, and about how it's okay to wrestle, and about how I am always willing to talk and wrestle through these things with you if you want to. That said, I also just want to reflect for a moment on how we need to approach these kinds of passages. On the one hand, we need to approach them carefully. There are people who will read commands of Scripture simplistically in ways that go beyond what it requires, or they will read them outside the context of the gospel, not giving grace as the foundation for what these passages say. And we want to make sure we are not challenging people beyond what Scripture warrants without the foundation of Christ. But we do need to be challenged. We need to let Scripture confront us, even in unpleasant ways. That is what it means to say that we believe the Bible, that we take it as our authority. If we've developed a way of reading God's Word that never leaves us feeling uncomfortable, we've probably abandoned the living God for somebody who we've made just look like us. And that really haunts me, and it's why I want us to take the time to wrestle with these teachings. I mean, just speaking honestly, I would love to skip over this passage in some ways and this teaching. It would be a lot easier and less stressful for me and probably for you guys. But here's what I know. I know that God's word isn't a potluck. You can't just pick the parts of it you like. If you're ever going to quote any part of scripture as authoritative for anyone, you've kind of got to take the whole thing. You can't expect people to follow some parts of the Bible if you're choosing to ignore other parts. And it's actually part of why I value what's called systematic expository preaching. Preaching through scripture as it comes, in order, trying to explain each text. It makes us confront passages that I would otherwise probably just avoid. And it makes me preach sermons that it would be easier not to preach, like this one. So this morning, I want us to bear that in mind and wrestle with Jesus' teachings here on divorce and what it means in our world. To do that, it's going to be important because this is such a hard issue for so many of us to try to bring in the whole of Scripture. The Bible is a unity, and we especially need to listen to its whole testimony when we come to hard topics. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to spend a few minutes talking about what the Bible says about marriage, and then I want to discuss this text and the few others that deal directly with divorce and try to summarize Scripture's teaching on that. And then I want to spend some time wrestling with how sinners like you and me live in the world that we live in with our own paths, with this kind of text. So as we dive in, let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that you would be with us today as we wrestle with a teaching that in many ways for many of us is going to feel particularly hard or hit close to home. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners, that you would show us your love, that you would also challenge us with your truth that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So before we dive into Jesus' teaching on divorce, we need to first think a little bit about how Scripture views marriage. So we first see marriage very early in the Bible. In Genesis 2, we have this story in the Garden of Eden, and Adam, the first human being, has just been created, and in verse 18, we read, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That is, that there is something in the very DNA, the creational design of human beings, that makes us require relationship 
and intimacy, and that marriage, in many ways in Scripture, is an outgrowth of that desire. So in Genesis 2, God first parades the animals in front of Adam and has him name them, but verse 20 tells us that no suitable companion was found among the animals. I'm sorry, dog lovers. So God caused Adam, (laughs) he caused Adam to fall asleep and takes out part of him and he creates Eve. And Adam wakes up and sees Eve and he says in verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then in verse 24, the author tells us, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There are two things that we learn from that speech. First, marriage is a part of how God designed human beings to work. That doesn't mean that every one of us is going to marry. God calls some people to be single for their whole lives and calls all of us to be single for some portions of them. And that doesn't mean that we can't live or experience or serve God fully in the midst of that calling, but it does mean that marriage is the norm, that there's something climactic about it in our relationships. God doesn't create Bob the buddy to drink beer and watch sports with Adam, right? Because it's not good for him to be alone. He creates Eve, a wife. Our loneliness can be met in all kinds of relationships, friends and family and neighbors, but the most intimate relationship intended for most of us is marriage. And this is because of the second thing to notice, that marriage is a one-flesh union. Two beings are made one. You're united in marriage. You're somehow one flesh. That image is a powerful one, right? Partly it describes this thing that physically happens in marriage that I'm not going into this morning, But more than that, it also is describing this relational and spiritual joining. Somehow two separate human beings are made one in a real way in the eyes of the world and the eyes of God in marriage. This view of one flesh union is kind of crazy, if we're honest. Paul in Ephesians 5 calls it a profound mystery, but it is also foundational to marriage. Marriage is a mystical and powerful and real union in which two human beings are somehow made one. How is that one flesh union realized then? In scripture, it's through another perspective on marriage, that marriage is a covenant commitment. A covenant commitment. The word covenant pops up a lot in the Bible, and what it means is a relationship established between two people by a set of unbreakable promises. A relationship established between two people by a set of unbreakable promises. The prophet Malachi zeroes in on this idea of covenant in Malachi too as it applies to marriage. And in verse 14 of that passage, Malachi is declaring judgment against Israel and Judah because he says, The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Your marriage covenant. That passage actually has a lot to say, but let's zero in on that idea of marriage as a covenant. When we get married, we make these promises, and they are big promises, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. And we didn't invent those promises, right? They are based on the Bible. They are meant to express the way the Bible treats marriage as a covenant commitment. And because it's a covenant, it also establishes a unique kind of relationship. The promises actually create a kind of relationship that we couldn't have without them. The covenant bond of marriage is meant to allow intimacy and security 
so that people can grow closer and work through harder things than they could without it. It's worth reflecting on for a minute. I remember hearing a radio story on This American Life, which I know I referred to another story from last week, so you know I really like that, that show. But this story has this guy, and he's talking about his long-term girlfriend and their theory that you should break up every few years to kind of really stay together in a relationship, which wasn't really working out very well for them, no surprise. And anyway, that story is interesting, but it isn't the point. As the interview ends, the guy who's kind of full of himself throughout the interview, throws out this idea that even in marriage, maybe you should take a break every seven years and decide whether you want to stick with it, that you need an escape door, he called it. And Ira Glass, the host of the show, who's doing the interview, and up to now has just been kind of asking questions and listening, he suddenly jumps in, and this is what he says. He says, actually, one of the things that's a comfort in marriage is that there isn't a door at seven years. So if something is messed up in the short term, There's a comfort of knowing we made this commitment, so we're just going to work this out. And even if tonight there's something wrong or something between us doesn't feel right, we have a comfort in knowing we've got time. We're going to figure this out. And it makes it easier because you do have times when you hate each other's guts. You know what I mean? And the no escape clause, weirdly, is a bigger comfort to being married than I ever would have thought before I was. And the guy who he was interviewing didn't know what to do with that. But I'll tell you what, Ira Glass isn't a Christian or anything, but that is one of the most Christian explanations of marriage I've ever heard. Because it's true. Marriage is full of failures and screw-ups. At least mine is. And if it wasn't for the commitment that comes with it, I don't know what I'd do. Or to use other words... The poet Wendell Berry puts it this way in a poem entitled Marriage, which is one of the most honest expressions of what marriage is like I've ever heard. He says, Marriage is to be broken. It is to be torn open. It is not to be reached and come to rest in ever. I turn against you. I break from you. I turn to you. We hurt and are hurt and have each other for healing. It is healing. It is never whole. That is, that marriage is not a relationship without hurt or failure, but it is a relationship that binds us together through them, that we hurt and are hurt, but that we also have each other for healing, and that the bonds of the commitment that we make with each other is the thing that we need to ultimately move towards healing. So marriage is a creational union and a covenant commitment in Scripture. And there's a lot of other things we could say about marriage. That's not an exhaustive study. But it is the essential background to what Jesus is going to discuss on divorce. Before we get there, though, it's emphasizing that this makes it a big deal. I included this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, the one on oaths in our reading, for a reason. In it, Jesus warns against swearing by things, heaven or earth or the hair on your head. And we in our world can kind of wonder what Jesus is talking about. But basically, here's what's going on. So the law of Moses in the Old Testament forbids swearing by God out of respect for him. You're not allowed to swear by God. So what happened is that people would start swearing by other things, right? The heavens or the earth or whatever. But then the question arose, all right, but what happens if you break that oath? What's the earth going to do to you? And the conclusion of the rabbis in Jesus' day was basically nothing, which had developed the system where people could say, well, if I had sworn by God, I'd have to keep my word, but I'm not allowed to do that, and since I only swore by some created thing, it's all right if I break my vow. 
And that's why Jesus makes these points about how everything is connected to God. Swearing by heaven is still swearing by the place that God sits. Swearing by earth is swearing by his footstool. Jesus is saying that you can't get out of your word by some legal sleight of hand. Every promise is a promise made before God, and we are accountable to him if we break any of them. So we're to let our yes mean yes and our no mean no, because God is our witness when we give our word, and it is he who we have to answer to. And that's crucial as we wrestle with the question of divorce, because marriage in Scripture is not a personal agreement or a civil contract, but it is a divine covenant. In fact, if you read Malachi 2, you'll notice that verse 10 links the marriage covenant back to the covenant God makes with his people and sees a kind of symmetry between the two. It's serious stuff. So that's marriage in the Bible. So within this context of marriage that Jesus addresses questions about divorce. And with that framework in place, let's discuss what he says. So first, Jesus makes reference to a law that was in the Old Testament. He summarizes it in verse 31, as anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 24, which contains some Old Testament case laws about divorce. And in Jesus' day, there were two ways of understanding what that passage in Deuteronomy meant. One was the school that followed this rabbi named Hillel. It's always a joy in sermons when I can use interesting rabbis' names. But it held that based on Deuteronomy 24, a man could divorce his wife for any reason. Seriously, any reason. Hillel says, if she burns your dinner, that's grounds for divorce. And the thing to realize is that the school of Hillel was much larger and ended up winning in ancient Judaism. But there was another school led by the rabbi Shammai that disagreed, and they held that Deuteronomy 24 regulates divorce but doesn't allow it. Indeed, they held that the nature of marriage generally precludes divorce. They gave an exception for adultery because in the law in Deuteronomy, adultery was punishable by death, which for obvious reasons ended marriage. And while in Jesus' day that penalty was no longer carried out, they held that then it was still appropriate to divorce in those circumstances but that otherwise it was forbidden. And that seems to be the school that Jesus supports. In fact, his words here in verse 32 are almost identical to the words that Shammai uses when he discusses this issue. So why does he support it? In Matthew 19, which is a good place to spend some time if you're processing and thinking about this sermon and the issues it has, this topic comes up again of divorce, and Jesus goes into a lot more detail of his views there. And in Matthew 19, he notes that Deuteronomy 24 never actually says a person could or should divorce, simply that if they did, they had to follow a legal process and give a certificate of divorce. He permitted it, Jesus says. But then he notes that permission exists within a context, and that context, he says in verse 5, is the one flesh union of marriage that exists at creation. So he argues in Matthew 19, Moses was right that if you get a divorce, you have to go through this process, but that does not mean that in any specific situation you can or should divorce. Moses just regulated it because of what Jesus calls there, your hardness of heart. Jesus pretty unequivocally opposes divorce in a general sense. In addition to here in Matthew 19, he's recorded talking about it in Luke 16 and Mark 10. And there are two things that I find striking about that. First, this is Jesus talking, right? We sometimes have a tendency to try to explain parts of the Bible that are challenging in the Old Testament or Paul by giving this sort of priority to the red letters. 
And that's not a good approach anyway. But regardless, this is red-letter stuff. This is one of Jesus' defining positions. And it wasn't just the view of his time either. We might try to say that that's just what everyone in Jesus' day thought, and so that's just why he's saying it. But that's not the case. Like we said, the school of Hillel is the majority position in Jesus' world. Jesus lives in a culture that's generally fine with divorce, and he takes the minority position opposing it. So Jesus is opposed in a general way to divorce. But he does allow an exception, and it's important to reflect that too as we think about what he says. As he puts it in verse 32, anyone who divorces his wife except for unfaithfulness or sexual immorality. So Jesus is like the school of Shammai um, and that he sees at least one case where divorce is permitted, sexual immorality, adultery. But how does that work, right? Because like we said, the school of Shammai holds that exception because of the death penalty that should have applied for adultery. But that doesn't quite fit for Jesus because he's coming to usher in a new area where those legal penalties of the Torah aren't enforced. He doesn't expect the church to be killing adulterers, right? But he still grants that exception. I think the answer to that rests in the way Jesus anchors marriage in creation. So Adam and Eve became one flesh, And that image is not just spiritual, it also communicates a physical reality that's meant to accompany marriage. So a spouse being unfaithful means that they are now engaged in that physical dimension of the one flesh union with somebody else, which shatters the covenant that's meant to exist between husband and wife. So in an essence, Jesus sees adultery as already breaking the marriage covenant, already in a sense being a divorce, And so while people could still reconcile and forgive, you can't use their one flesh union to require them to do it. This notion that a spouse can break the marriage covenant in a way that permits divorce also comes up for Paul. In 1 Corinthians 7, he discusses an issue that has risen in the church in Corinth. What about believers married to unbelievers? But he says in verse 12, If any brother has a wife who's not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. However, if the spouse is not willing to live in that union with a believer, he says in 15 that the believer can divorce them, that they're not under bondage, as Paul puts it. So that seems to allow another narrow exception, that when a spouse is somehow unwilling to live out the basic union of marriage, that divorce is permitted. The way the Westminster Confession, our theological document uh, that in the EPC summarizes that as willful desertion, So it's saying that there are certain things that permit divorce, adultery, and then willful desertion, which is things like abandoning your spouse or abusing them, um, that those can also be that kind of abandonment of the marriage covenant. And so the church has granted those as grounds for divorce as well. But again, those are severe things, right? The kinds of things that in essence so shatter the marriage covenant that there's nothing left to preserve. And in scripture, that's it for the exceptions adultery or irreconcilable willful desertion. Those are the biblical grounds for divorce, and there aren't others. And look, I know that is hard stuff. And hold with me, because there are all kinds of questions we have and guilt that needs the gospel, and I want so badly just to go there. But as I wrestle with these truths, I feel like first we need to take a moment to feel the weight of that command. When we come to these sorts of hard teachings... I can do this thing in my brain, or Satan can do this thing in my brain, I don't know, where I can recognize what the Bible says, 
but I don't like it. And so I'll say to myself something like, sure, that's sin, but we're all sinners, right? And Jesus loves sinners, so it's okay. And we are all sinners, and Jesus does love sinners, but that doesn't make it okay. Jesus says divorcing your spouse is like forcing them to commit adultery. And I don't have time to dig through all of the details of why he'd make that analogy, but it means it's serious stuff in his eyes, that it's really a big deal. Malachi 2.16, where the prophet's discussing divorce, reads, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, does violence to the one who he should protect. And that's a tame translation. The, heter- the Hebrew literally means that he soaks his robes in violence. And in verse 13 of Malachi 2, Israel's love of divorce is somehow given as a reason for God's judgment coming on them as a people. That is not meant to be condemnation. But some people encourage us to to treat divorce like it's not a big deal, right? It's like changing a job or buying a new car. And that is just not how Scripture treats it. God takes it seriously. And unless we want to be the kind of Christians who pick and choose only parts of God's word that we like, we have to feel the same way. So that's what Scripture teaches about divorce. And that is heavy and hard stuff, I know. So what do we do? I'd like to offer a few thoughts to try to help us as we struggle with that weight. First, to those of us that are thinking about divorce or who might think about it in the future, then to those of us who have been divorced, and then to all of us. First, to those of us who might consider divorce at some point in our marriage. There are actually a couple of things that need to be said. First, there are biblical grounds for divorce. There are situations where it is permitted. That doesn't mean that you should always choose it in those situations. There's space even when things as awful as adultery occur where you might decide to seek reconciliation. But in those cases, Scripture does give freedom to divorce. And I want to say that first because there are situations where the church or parts of the church has proclaimed a kind of opposition to divorce in a way that forces people to stay in marriages that the Bible doesn't require them to. I think about a guy I know who is a serial adulterer over and over, and it's destroying his wife, but she won't divorce him because she believes that Jesus requires her to stay with him. And Jesus is very clear in Scripture on what he requires, and it's not. Or another woman I know trapped in an abusive marriage where her life is literally in danger, but she was in a tradition that told her that she couldn't leave even though Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7 should apply in those kinds of situations, that you can go freely, you aren't under bondage. So there are biblical grounds for divorce, and we need to make sure, as we're thinking through it, that we grant permission in those cases. But for the rest of us who might be considering it, don't. Please, no matter how appealing it might look, no matter how hard things have been, or how much you're sure that you would be happier with someone else, you have a one flesh union and have made a covenant commitment that God takes enormously seriously. Don't walk out on that. That said, also don't consign yourself to sort of eternal suffering alone. There are hard marriages. Some people talk about marriage in the church and in the Bible as if every spouse is really great and marriage is totally happy and you're just misguided to not see it, but that's just not true. If you are one of those people in challenging marriages, find friends to support you, set boundaries, get counseling, come talk to me or to someone you know that you can trust, 
But also don't give up hope for your marriage. I'm not peddling an easy fix for you or a guarantee, but the hope in sticking with marriage is not that you're going to live another 30 miserable years and then die. It is that that there is hope that within relationships, the relationship that those promises create, there can be healing and change. Not that there always will be, and never that it will happen quickly, that it can happen. One of my dear friends from seminary had a father who was basically a jerk, harsh and cruel and unloving towards Tim and his brother and his mother, and there was, that was true for most of his childhood, right? But then his father met Jesus, and over some years of repentance and discipleship, he changed. Now my friend loves and appreciates his father. And I, I met the guy, and he seems like a completely different man than the one my friend described when he was a child. And I'm not telling you that there is some promise that if you stick with your marriage, that will happen, okay? I wish that I could, but I can't, and I'm not in the business of peddling that. But too often, I think we conclude that it could never happen, that restoration is impossible. And the truth is that there is power in the gospel, and that because of that, it might happen. Your marriage isn't hopeless, even if it is hard right now. For those of us who have been divorced, a couple of thoughts, too. First, some of us have been divorced on biblical grounds, and again, that needs to be said, or you weren't the person who wanted the divorce. And there's plenty of sin to go around in every marriage, but know that Scripture's teaching in such case is that you can go freely, that there should be no scandal or shame about that in such instances. And know that God is a God of resurrection and second chances, and your future doesn't have to be defined by the hurts of your past. And even if you were divorced without biblical grounds, that is still true. God is a God of second chances and resurrection. We do have to repent of the sins of our past, really repent and grieve them, but our futures aren't defined by them. They are covered in Christ's blood. And as surely as we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're to repent and experience that grace and then lean into the presence in a way that seeks to be faithful. Your current or future spouse, as much as there is hurt and wounds from your past one, is now who you are called to love and be faithful to. So seek to live into God's view of marriage in the present, knowing that he does forgive the past. For all of us, marriage is a high and holy calling. This should be a sober reminder of that reality. And I think there are two things in particular that that should remind all of us of. First, a specific reminder. While there are times when you are frustrated with your spouse and you fight with them, and maybe you even feel like you hate them, if you're going to seek to be obedient to Christ, you can't allow divorce to enter that conversation. One of the most destructive things that we can do in marriage is to hold our potential exit like a trump card, threatening it in every situation. There is a way that couples use the threat of divorce as a tool for power and security. If we're seeking to be biblically faithful, that should not be allowed. So as much as Elizabeth and I might yell at each other and fume and hurt each other, which I promise happens a lot more than you think, we know that the other person is never leaving. 
ever. And that's what allows that conflict to be soil for growth rather than soil being thrown on top of a coffin. But more than that, this text should remind us about the high and holy calling that marriage is. As much as this morning we're talking about divorce, having a Christian marriage doesn't just mean avoiding divorce either. It means flourishing. It means being the kind of spouse that blesses your partner. While we haven't had time to dwell there, our goal in marriage is not just sticking together. It is mutual love and building up and reflecting the love of Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul pictures the goal of marriage as being the loving communion between Jesus and his church, that we are to give ourselves up in marriage like he does on the cross, that we are to seek the good and the glory and the happiness and the splendor of our spouse, or to cherish their beauty, or to encourage and build them up. So let's give ourselves to that calling most of all. Let's meet Jesus, our great bridegroom, and in him find the resources to love our spouse and to love all those that he places in our lives and rely on his grace when we fail. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I pray for myself, for all those here who are married, that you would build us up in our marriages. Pray that you would help us to be faithful and obedient to your call, to every part of it, I pray that we might give ourselves the grace that we need as we wrestle with our sin. But I pray that that grace might transform us and build us up into obedience and service and pursuit after you. Pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me?
It is good to worship with you and to seek to walk into the calling of our Lord Jesus Christ together with you guys. Let me re-articulate again, as I said at the beginning this morning, that I know this is a challenging subject for most of us and that I am happy to wrestle alongside you guys with what Scripture teaches. My door is always open. My heart is open and goes out to all of you. Um, as we go out from this place, know that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ goes with us and know that while marriages may be the climax of that need for relationship, we all need all of each other. So go out into your lives this week. If you want to, go out and have some coffee after church this morning, but spend some time fellowshipping and growing closer together. And I pray that we might all go out in service to Jesus Christ our Lord. Go now with his blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you all, now and always. Amen.